You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, The Driven, EV-focused website, and One Step Off the Grid. And joining me as usual is ITK principal David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well and judging by your sound quality, you are on the move. Well, I've been watching whales yesterday at Scott's Head and dolphins today here at Yamba. And I trust all our listeners uh, are enjoying things as much as I am. Well, no, exactly, exactly, exactly. Look, we've um, we've got a, um, a really interesting interview that um, that you did um, a few days ago, uh, talking about sort of some of the social license issues, uh, particularly in regional New South Wales, um, which of course is quite important. But look, before we get to that, I just thought we would touch on some of the news of the week, and I guess. I guess probably the biggest one is the uh, decision by the ACCC to um, provide approval, regulatory approval, competition approval for the proposed bid by Brookfield for Origin. It's actually a combined bid with Mid-Ocean Energy, but uh, Mid-Ocean wants the energy business, which I guess is, which may have its own issues. Um, but um, the one that interests us mostly, I think, is the Brookfield component of it. They want to take over the origin utility business and have promised to grant things up to $30 billion in new wind, solar and storage. There was some concern about Brookfield's part ownership of the Osnet uh, network and the ACCC voices concern about that and its ability to actually in- impede and hinder the projects of rivals, but it said in, in, in first of its kind um, decision in Australia that the climate credentials of Brookfield's plans, specifically its you know plan to build 13.7 gigawatts of wind, solar and storage, overweigh those competition concerns, even though the ACCC did question whether they would actually be able to build that amount in over the next decade because of all the um, connection problems that we know so well. David, um, interesting decision, interesting reasoning. What was your reaction? Uh, my reaction was th- uh, ch- three cheers. Uh, to start with, I do think Brookfield will do as they say they will. They've got the balance sheet, the capital and, and the will to do it. Um, they'll do that from the origin cash flows by essentially not paying themselves a dividend uh, and using the dividends to finance projects year by year. Uh, however, the first point, uh, it's also important to see the ACCC taking that attitude. And I'd observe that the AEMC has also been discussing how they will uh, put the climate change objective that's now in the National Electricity Objective, how they will interpret that in practice. Uh, um, but uh, of course, getting approval from the ACCC, you've still got to get FERB approval, which I, I personally would treat as an absolute formality now. Uh, but you've actually got to get shareholders on board. Uh, since the bid was first announced, uh, uh, the gas prices went up, although they've subsequently come down. And I think Origin's also doing much better on the utility profits, far better. Uh, and you've also now got the prospect, of course, of the state government wanting to keep Araring going. And even though I personally, I mean, one doesn't know what Araring's um, trading book is like. So you can't know all the contracts that they've entered into and what the cost of breaking those contracts would be 
if Araring is to keep going when the previous plan was to close it. But leaving the trading book aside, of which I can have no knowledge, I'm reasonably confident that in its day-by-day -day and hour-by-hour -hour operations, uh, Araring continues to be reasonably profitable, although less so right now in spring, when of course electricity prices continue to be very low, uh, as we remarked last week. Indeed, indeed. And look, I think probably the main impediment to Araring for any sort of longer um, extension would be I'm told the um, the issues with this ash dam because that's apparently very full, and um, it's technically. Um, it's, I think Giles. Technically, the last time I heard anyone with knowledge of the topic who was Kerry Shot speak about it, she mentioned 2032 uh, as as the hard close date. But uh, I don't actually know what the situation is since then. Do you know more? Well, I've been told that it probably couldn't go for more than a couple of years because they do have major issues with the ash dam. So um, it would be interesting to find out more. Um, perhaps um, the Origin people could share that information with us. Um, David, um, yeah, I mean, do you think then that Brookfield can actually build that much that quickly in, in 10 years? I mean, it doesn't seem that quickly, and it actually seems the sort of thing that Australia needs to do to get to the 82% renewables target. Um, some people who are actually sort of criticising the decision by the ACCC say, well, if Brookfield really wanted to do it, they could do it without owning Origin. Origin. But I guess your point about them using the cash flows from the origin utility business probably puts paid to that idea. Well, I think the ACCC commissioned a report from Matt Harris at Frontier Economics, and I have to have some account that I, I, I was um, had an opportunity to to talk about that report, uh, and I thought it was a load of rubbish. The basic contention that Frontier put out was that. Uh, and that the ACCC, essentially, as far as I can see, wanted uh, Frontier to say was that if you just put policy in place, that's all you need to do. That just because a, a, um, a generator owns a retailer uh, and whether they actually want to build renewables or not won't matter if you put in place the appropriate laws and rules. Whereas I'm completely convinced that uh, all rules and laws, the actual execution of it, depends on the actors uh, involved. The actors in this case are the Gentailers. And, and I've written extensively that I think the Gentailers have done a terrible job of building new renewables, particularly in the last five years, and that it absolutely makes a difference when people want to do something as opposed to just paying lip service and, and doing it very reluctantly. Yes, well, I point out that um, Brookfield want uh, to declare that their intention is to build 13.7 gigawatts um, out to, over the next decade. Um, Origin's intention was to build four gigawatts. Um, I think AGL's intention out to 2035 is about sort of five or six gigawatts. Um, so uh, Brookfield want to do basically all the major gentailers together. So um, it is probably a good thing. Um, just one other thing. Charles, just 13 gigawatts is not enough. And I didn't answer the question of can it be done. The answer is we won't know whether it can be done until someone actually tries. You know, at the moment, <laughs> no one's really trying. <laughs> That's a very good point. It's a very good point. Um, just the one other thing I'd like to point out, you mentioned the AMC um, sort of looking at the sort of national electricity objective um, and they sort of indicated they're looking to how to incorporate that. Um, all those regulatory and rulemaking decisions now must take the environment and climate emissions into account, which is something that um, was taken out of the national electricity market 
market rules at its inception by the Howard government in the late 1990s. Um, apparently, C isn't actually part of that um, ruling, so this is just something of their own back decided that they, um, uh, th they're not... They're not part of that. Um, they're quite independent of that and um, the act under which they operate. So their decision well, well, Charles, to... Uh, sorry, one other thing that's worth mentioning, it may or may not be relevant, but the ACCC has a new chair, uh, as opposed to... We've, we've had Rod Sims on this uh, podcast before, but they, this is, you know, new chairs often signal uh, or can lead to changes in attitude and policy at the margin it's never said to be the cause of the chair, but it's often a coincidence that you get a slight change of direction. Uh, you know, anyway, I just, let, we, well, we're not here to talk about that. Well, but. well, the chair has actually gone away for a couple of days, so the acting chair made a ruling today um, rejecting AEMO's request to coordinate and share information about the maintenance and repairs of the coal-fired generators, which is a bit ironic, because AEMO says well, they, we need to share information and actually coordinate this particularly... Um, as uh, we know, hit, enter into sort of a series of hot summers, and they don't want everything sort of um, um, offline at the same time because they need to muster all the resources they can possibly do. So that was an interesting one, but um, will be it'll be interesting to see where we end up with with that decision. Um, so um, anyway, look, David, um, another interesting thing that happened this week, I think, was the federal government sort of advancing two relatively important um, policy initiatives. One is the Hydrogen Head Start uh, initiative designed to sort of counteract or at least sort of um, in response to the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, uh, $2 billion to be offered probably to around about three or four projects, I'm not really too sure how many, at least 50 megawatt electrolyzers. Um, at the same time, you've got Fortescue making a big advance with some of its hydrogen projects. Um, one signing a deal with GenX, which is interesting for a large off-tech agreement which will kickstart the Bulai Creek solar and storage project, which will be the biggest in the country so far, and will no doubt be overtaken at some point. And also doing a bit of an about-face and signing a long-term supply agreement with Plug Power, the US company that was going to provide the electrolysis for its new manufacturing plant in Gladstone, but now will actually supply a huge amount, 550 megawatts of them for the um, Gibson Island project. So some things going forward there and um, also the kickstart of the capacity investment scheme which is 600 megawatts um, average four-hour storage for South Australia and Victoria um, fast-tracked to address some of the emerging reliability issues that may present themselves in the next couple of years particularly in light of the extension of the interim reliability standard. Um, I think I've just spoken an awful long time. David, any thoughts? Uh, yes, well, you know, these policy bits and pieces are clearly important, but I don't think they're all that the uh, industry needs. Um, I have read, uh, rightly or wrongly, that once the voice referendum is decided, that uh, that federal government policy uh, or will turn its mind to what energy policy it wants to take to the next election, essentially. And I do think energy policy will be a big deal in the Queensland election as well. But in federally, I think we can do a lot more than, than what's been done so far. And uh, there are a few options out there, like extending the uh, RET is, was one that was very popular at, say, the time of the Clean Energy Conference. Uh, I personally think something like our own Inflation Reduction Act uh, uh, would be a, a good thing and would help to keep electricity prices low. That's a tax subsidy, essentially, for building uh, renewable energy. 
uh, that that once you've got that tax subsidy, uh, uh, it's it's guaranteed for the life and it's fixed for the price of the life of the project, so it brings the cost of capital down. Uh, and as I said, I think there's some more policies that could be done federally about household batteries that would be useful immediately. But uh, well, uh, interestingly enough, I mean, the Clean Energy Council came out with its sort of um, a, a, a rather large document sort of recommending pretty much what you just outlined, plus more. So they wanted the extension of the red. They wanted actually various storage targets, uh, specific targets, uh, more incentive for rooftop solar, battery storage, offshore wind targets, for instance. I mean, there's a whole basket of things which they were talking to, and then they actually made the point, um, which is probably goes back to the one that you made talking about Brookfield, is that Australia's really got to make its own luck here, create its own luck, it just can't expect things to happen. Oh, absolutely. Well, we've talked a lot, Giles, uh, as usual. Uh, perhaps we should listen to our guests. And you asked me earlier, and it's an important question, can uh, uh, Brookfield build 13 gigawatts? And I would observe that 13 gigawatts is nowhere near enough, right? We need more 30 gigawatts to be built uh, somehow or other, not not 13. But uh, uh, part of the debate is about getting convincing everyone else and getting acceptance and trust and belief that this is good for the regions. And to catch up on the state of play as to how people in the Tumut area, the Irana area, and in the New England area uh, we had three people on from those areas uh, to talk about it. Of course, they're not the only people. And those pair, people are Lee Kingmar, uh, who could talk about Tumor, who's a grazier and has two transmission lines on his property. Uh, Warwick Giblin, who's advised some of the councils and some landowners and runs Oz Environmental and is an associate professor at uh, 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 University of New England. And Lou Owens, who's uh, assisting with the build or planning of a solar farm in the New England area and uh, is based out of Tamworth, and I think uh, has a fair idea of what's going on. And I will say at the start of this, before we actually listen to them, uh, the message I took from it is that uh, um, basically some more careful planning, of course, that where we could see the master plan for each renewable energy zone uh, would assist a lot. In preparation for this interview, I might add, uh, Giles, I, I went away and read the report from the Upper House uh, of New South Wales into whether Hume uh, 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 Link should be undergrounded. And there was a lot said about transmission and community attitudes in that. And I think the, the, the Upper House actually did a great job in that report. Uh, and it's well worth reading the evidence about uh, transmission lines and stuff like that. But with Without further ado, let's let's have a listen to the local experts. And again, I have to apologise for the sound quality and say that we won't be having that uh, post, post this interview. It's a great pleasure to welcome uh, a special session of the Energy Insiders podcast uh, to talking to uh, some uh, representatives, spokespeople uh, and dwellers in regional New South Wales. Um, uh, it's a first for Energy Insiders. We've got uh, three whole guests. Uh, Lee Kingmar, uh, who's the owner-manager of a Tumut uh, sheep and cattle property uh, and has uh, two existing 330 kV lines on his property. And uh, I've known Lee for a little bit and he really knows what he's talking about. We've got Warwick Giblin, who's the managing director of Oz, Oz Environmental, who's also an adjunct professor of the University of New England and has represented local government and farmers in the Arana uh, Renewable Energy Zone. And uh, last but not least, we've got Lou Owens, who's the Chief Executive of Efficacy Advisors based in Tamworth, 
uh, who's I think working on um, a solar farm uh, in in the New England region. So I guess we're going to cover a lot of uh, New South Wales and uh, quite a lot to talk about. Uh, Lee, I think you've been looking at the situation in some ways and raising issues about the discrepancy between transmission and wind uh, and uh, seen what's happening in your community for quite a while. How are you seeing things at the moment? Yeah, that's right. So uh, Humelinks, you, you know, it's They've been con- Transgrid's been consulting the community since about 2020. Um, it's still moving forward, and the EIS is on it being exhibited now. But yeah, broadly, the community still hasn't accepted. You know, the overhead lines. We're still hearing a lot of debate about undergrounding. Um, most most landowners are still strongly opposed, and I think only about 40% of actually allowed Transgrid to complete the surveys and. Um, close the negotiations about easements. Um, there's still a huge disparity in the compensation between uh, renewable energy developments like wind farms and solar farms and their associated transmission um, line compensation. Um, and I, you know, I think that's part of the story, but um, there's also a lot of people who just don't want these 80 metre high towers on their property at any price, really. Yeah. Uh, when I looked at the inquiry and um, um, that, that the New South Wales Upper hat House had into the underground in, uh, Transgrid did state that they, they've got um, some kind of agreements over about 75% of the, uh, of the route, 250 kilometres, but I'm sure that's not the final bit. Um, it's a shame that we've got so far, and because I think uh, Transgrid's already sp- or spent about four or five hundred million or close to it on early works. So we'll, c- we'll come back to there. But Warwick, uh, you, you you're in Irana. You haven't been happy, I don't think, with the way Energy Co has been approaching it. Uh, what's your take on things at the moment? Well, hello, David. Uh, first thing I would say is it's it's a huge. Um, changing environment, you know, in ten, terms of the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone. Picture that there's potentially 35 different generation projects in that res, together with a major transmission line. Now, the key issues more broadly across the res at the moment would be that the transmission, the proposed transmission line EIS is currently on exhibition. It's 8,000 pages. There's 28 days for the community to respond. And there's a lot of concern around that that time frame is inadequate. So there's um, a bit of uh, anxiety and concern around that. But bearing in mind, aside from the transmission line, David, the three key issues I think are developers gaining social license um, from the community in relation to all these potential developments. Secondly, what are going to be the impacts on local roads, which are owned by the councils, and will those assets retain their value or even be improved? And lastly, within the order of seven to 9,000 construction workers over the next few years coming in, uh, what are the implications of that? Where are they going to be housed? 
and what additional pressures will that place on uh, social services? Great. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, I think you've mentioned in our previous discussion, and it's something again I was reading in this New South Wales Upper House inquiry, that what what would really assist the process is not so much an EIS, but, uh, but um, a, a broad development plan, a master plan for the whole thing, so that everyone could see uh, what was in it and what the costs were going to be and what it would look like in the end. Maybe we'll come back to that because I heard a lot of those comments were made by uh, to the inquiry by people in New England. Lou, what are you seeing up there in New England at the moment? Uh, yes, so New England, the home of Barnaby Joyce, so we have lots of fun up here. Um, so look, I might start with a few positives. You know, um, I think there are some people up in this area who, who definitely can see the benefits of the energy transition and, you know, creating a... A potentially creating positive legacy. You know, we had we had a business uh, group with 120 odd people coming in and really wanted to get involved, but lots of difficulties as well. Um, so I think uh, definitely uh, when the res got released, there wasn't much information out there up here at all, and uh, uh, particularly down in Tamworth, probably a little bit more in some of the other uh, areas up more into Armidale. Um, and there was actually serious pushback, even amongst, I guess, people who were pro-supporters about the way it sort of got rolled out, but also about just the speed of which it's being developed. And I think we keep getting that, that response here that um, this all just seems to have happened too quick and I wasn't aware of it. Um, uh, so, and look, obviously we're seeing development going very slow and I guess we've got a concern too, the, the faster it goes to meet the, the renewable targets, the, uh, the further that pushback might end up being. Yes, indeed. Uh, so I guess, Lee, I'll come back to you. Uh, there has been a lot of work done, I think, by Transgrid and the New South Wales Upper House did have this inquiry, which gave everyone a chance to ha express their views on both sides of it. Have you? And, and there is, since we first talked more than a year ago, there's a lot more compensation around now, but has has any has the mood changed? I mean, your basic point is that people people just don't want transmission, but at the same time, uh, I mean, we're not going to have a, a transition and more renewable energy without more transmission. So we have to make it work somehow. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the, there's broad understanding in the community that we need, you know, we need to have this this transition. Um, but there's, there's a lot of challenges, as we said. When you know, when there's been consultation about you know probably about six different permutations of Humlink that's run for three years now, and there's definitely been an improvement in the in the consultation effort and the communication, and and that's obviously having some benefits in the community. But there's also just a lot of fatigue, and um, you know, when we talk about things like the undergrounding inquiry, the perception in the community now is that that was really a ticking the box exercise. Um, they hung a lot of hopes on that and, and, you know, a lot of people put a lot of effort into that um, without probably really understanding that um, there's really no prospect of, even if the cost no, is 100%. It, was, it, was it was like, you know, it was... I, Actually, we've all got our own take on it, but it seems to me that it was always uh, a little unrealistic to expect the inquiry to to to, to actually recommend undergrounding. 
Uh, no, I, I agree, and I've uh, said many times in community meetings that you know we need to start talking about uh, ways to share the benefits or reduce the impacts um, that that are realistic. But the reality is that the broader community doesn't necessarily understand that distinction, or, or understand that we can't go and you know increase the price from five to ten ten billion dollars. It's not really they don't really have the background to. To, to understand that and, and the more inquiries we do, the more studies, because this is, I think we're on to our third inquiry or study now into, into undergrounding and while, that, while it's still an open issue, then people, people still think it's got a prospect of, of going ahead. So yeah, rightly or wrongly, that's how it, it seems to have been, been viewed. I, I want to ask you one more question, which is just generally about uh insiders versus outsiders i mean what what can transgrid i mean you've got transmission on your property i drive past i can see transmission out my window i drive past it and it seems to me that historically people didn't love transmission uh people talk about getting cancer from the wires uh and so on but in the end it it, it people just put up with it why is it so different now and what what can be done to get the community to accept it more do you think yeah well, obviously there's a you know everybody's got a different opinion towards it but i mean but part of that part part of the issue locally is the legacy of the of the last round of transmission when it was installed more or less you know where the um electricity commission thought it should go with minimal consultation and minimal compensation as well and a lot of the land is still in the same family as families as when that round of transmission was put in so there's an aspect of people sort of maybe trying to claw back so you know some of those um, losses of, of the past um, there's there's also there's also the issue of, um, you know, the electricity market's been, it's changed a lot since then. And now the, all the other participants, apart from rural landowners, are really participating in a, in a way where they're getting a, a percentage of the capital spend or the revenue from those projects. And so I think people hosting transmission are feeling left behind. Good, uh, and uh, I think that's uh, what's in it, uh, you know, and the overall benefits for, for the whole of regional New South Wales is, is, is a very important topic. I, I'm going to come back to you in a minute, Warwick, but uh, up in New England, uh, Lou, I mean, uh, again, what, what can Energy Co, uh, I guess, uh, do to improve things? Like, I think they've got a permanent representative there now, um, and it seems to me that there is a lot of benefits for, as well as costs for the local community. And in my mind, the benefits actually outweigh the costs. But how, 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 what's the way to go, to go forward? Yeah, so they have put on a local uh, and, 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 a, and a true local at that. So I'll give him a fair bit of credit for that. You know, um, uh, her family uh, from the area and, and, and she grew up there. Uh, so that, that's fantastic. That actually has made a bit of a difference. But I guess there's a couple of things there and, you know, um, there probably are some people who wouldn't mind them necessarily being on their property, but they want to really have a say about 
where possibly they're routed through. You know, there's some big big property owners out there. Um, and so I think that they feel at the moment, there's sort of a, probably the best way to put it is a genuine consultation. They want to be genuinely engaged and, and heard and they know their property better than anyone else. They want to have a say of where it's going. There definitely is the compensation question and you know, there are many parties who um, are the, are the are neighbours to the renewable project, so now much the renewable project guys are getting or um, uh, the other way. And I, I think there has to be that that conversation that's fair and uh, and equitable uh, right across. And I think there's still got a bit of way to go there. Um, the, the other one though is communicating those benefits. And <laughs> you said it earlier. I'll go to it. Uh, you know, a master plan type arrangement. You know, so making sure the benefits are uh, are shared. You know, they're. To, to deliver these these assets, it's more than just building transmission lines. You know, there has to be training for the people. There has to be, there will be local jobs. There's there's going to be um, associates to be road, they have to be road upgrades. Um, and and rather than doing it piecemeal, doing it as a, a master plan, you know, actually allows this legacy to be left in the area, um, and hopefully a positive one that rather than a negative one because the legacy is going to leave the legacy anyway. So you want it to be. In the right way, and and if it can be done in a way where, um, yeah, th- these benefits are ongoing for the next generation, um, then you know it, it really does create that that positive outlook uh, there. There's a bit of that communication needs to come out about the positive, and I, it, that messaging really isn't there at the moment. I don't think. Yeah, a, a lot of it does seem to be around messaging and planning. Uh, Warwick, I'll I'll come back to you and. Uh, um can I just say, and we'll have, a, we'll have a pause, don't forget to put your phone on mute when you're not talking. But uh, Warwick, um, uh, what's, I know you've been representing councils and, and uh, you know, the whole process of what's in it for the broader community as well as the individual landowner is, I think, a big issue. Uh, what do you think Energy Co could do to Im- improve the uh, overall approach rather than just giving out more money? I mean, that's obviously part of what everyone wants, but it's not the only thing, is it? No, it's certainly not, David. But can I just make a couple of quick comments about the transmission line matter? I think <clears throat> there's two uh, critical factors here. One is that in terms, it's a state significant infrastructure project and therefore by definition, the government can compulsorily acquire land where the line is to go, right? Now, that's all well and good. However, if you wish to secure social license, as as uh, Lou and, uh, and Leah mentioned, you know, that means engaging and the sharing of power um, that's not exactly what happens with compulsory acquisition, right? So I think there's that point. The second one is, in this day and age, uh, David, the market is all about, is privatised, right? It's all about the free market. I think that farmers should be, it should be considered that farmers get an opportunity to receive a compensation which is comparable with the fact that them hosting the line is generating a lot of wealth and future well-being for our society. And why not have them be able to clip the ticket, so to speak, for a return based on the revenue that's passing down that line 
each year. Yeah, I, I guess my comment to that would be that uh, in wind farms and solar farms, that's a negotiation uh, and, and both sides uh, don't proceed unless the negotiation comes to a satisfactory outcome. Whereas in, 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 in transmission, it's in the end uh, a, a fixed amount, more or less, one way or the other, but even if it's improved from where it was. But Warwick, you didn't answer my question about the councils and, uh, and roads and, uh, you know, uh, in, in your opinion, how should they be part of the process? And my question around that is, if councils were very enthusiastic about it, do you think that would make much difference to the process? Well, I would say that the councils are very enthusiastic about the whole concept, David. The point is, however, they need to be duly diligent in the way they examine what's contemplated. And as far as I'm aware, the three councils in the central west of Rana Res are all demonstrating appropriate, considered merit-based assessment of what is contemplated and they are totally focused in a reasonable manner on ensuring that the well-being of their residents and ratepayers are being properly considered. At critical, the critical issue is to, to ensure that costs from the projects are not being outsourced and carried by the communities, by residents and ratepayers. Particularly, as I say, it's all market-driven now, it's all privatised. You know, we need to be ensuring that major corporations, most of them international ones, are not uh, lining their pockets uh, even more so because local communities are carrying costs. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess my own view is there should be clearly defined benefits in terms of the rate base for councils, most of which are struggling. Uh, how do the councils down in your area uh, see things, Lee? Yeah, we're, our council's certainly struggling financially um, and, you know, we've had several rate increases now. Um, I, I would say they're, they're not fully... Um, pro probably across the... or the, There's really no platform for Snowy 2.0 and Humlink to share benefits in the same way that there is in the uh, res res councils that Warwick's involved with. Um, so we're sort of a bit left out at the moment and not really able to participate in the same way that um, those other councils are. Uh, yeah, and while we're talking about, you mentioned Snowy 2, what's the community attitude there to Snowy 2? And, uh, you know, what could, what could Snowy do to improve? Yeah, I mean, it's been under construction for, for a few years now. Um, we have seen, you know, some both positive and negative impacts from it. Um, for example, the Snow Mountains Highway has deteriorated significantly uh, to the extent that we've had to reduce the speed limit, from, you know, from time to time. And so I guess that's, you know, when we talk about the benefits that are coming in the new roads and infrastructure and that sort of thing, I mean, hopefully it will come in time, but at the moment we're not really seeing that. Um, we're also seeing a lot of pressure on the accommodation in town. It's not only because of Snow 2.0, but um, what that means is that uh, if you if we need to bring, you know, central service people into the town you, or new employees uh, as employers, and you have to actually go and find the accommodation first. Um, and 
we're seeing things like the fact you can't get an appointment at the local GP, you can't, the, the local high school's not able to fill all of their teaching positions and they're regularly, you know, running classes where, where they have to, um, you know, join classes together because there's just simply not enough teachers. Now, not a direct or not only caused by these infrastructure projects, but definitely contributing to it. Um, yeah, no, I mean, and obviously I need to come up with <laughs> some some solutions as well, David, and not just not just problems. Um, and I think they are involving local contractors, um, and certainly some of the local businesses are benefiting, you know, directly from these projects. Um, and and I know that um, Transgrid is is working on that as well with their local procurement, and they seem to have done a, f- a reasonable job of that with the earlier transmission projects um, west of Wagga. Um, so hopefully they can build on that when we eventually get to construction with Humelink. Yeah, so, you know, again, uh, I might come back to Lou. When I look up at New England, uh, the shining light in my eye is the Urala Solar Farm, uh, which is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, led to a lot of jobs. It's seen Urala, a town I'm pretty familiar with, uh, seem to be doing way better than it used to be, whereas down in Walker, uh, where the development will go, right now Walker doesn't have any accommodation, but certainly looks down in the dumps uh, compared to how it, how it used to be. It seems, I mean, every region probably will talk about not having enough doctors or teachers. I mean, this one of my great hopes is that the extra skilled workforce that comes in along this will, will lead to more professionals in the regions than, than maybe are there at the moment and maybe it'll get easier to see a doctor. I mean, can, can you see that happening in New England? Uh, I would hope so. Um, look, actually, Urella is a, a great story. You know, um, we were at the Bush Summit and someone made a remark, I, I can't figure out why some towns do really well and others don't. And you know, it's through that local investment. And But I guess that comes with the, the investment has to be in the right areas as well so you can't just have a transmission line come in or you know renewable energy zone come in you have to have the other aspects of investment you have to have you have to have the schools you have to have you know the hospital upgrades you, you know if you bring people in you have to make sure you've got the services to support them it doesn't you know you have to if you want the jobs to stay locally you have to train people up uh, to really take advantage so i think these residents we need to take a, a bigger view and not just view them in isolation of we're building a transmission line because it's so much more than that and I think that's how they can um, definitely get that, you know, more down the path of social licence. And, you know, really, people then, when they see those, those other things coming with it, doesn't mean they're going to like it. Um, uh, and, and there still will be people who's, who definitely do not want to go through their backyard, of course. But, um, you know, for, from a, a community perspective, at least they're bringing along other aspects rather than just building a transmission line. Warwick, so far we've talked mainly about transmission. Um, I guess it's the actual wind and solar farms that use the transmission are also an issue. That, uh, I don't know what to say. I mean, to me, I, 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 the truth is I like looking at wind farms. I don't necessarily love looking at transmission lines, but I can sit and watch a wind farm turbine t- blades turning, or, and I do when I'm driving on the highway. Often I've got, my wife's got to tell me to keep my eyes back on the road. Uh, what what's the general attitude towards uh, the actual wind and solar farms themselves, and the and let's be honest, the thousands of jobs uh, that are supposed to come during the construction phase with all of that? 
Um, <clears throat> look, I think, I think generally speaking, most people are fairly agnostic about either a wind farm or a solar farm. But it's all the peripheral stuff that goes with this, David, like, you know, what are the environmental, social and economic costs and benefits, right? And who's reaping the benefits and who's carrying the costs? It's as simple as that. And at the end of the day, we, you know, need to have faith in the system that there will be a balanced, considered merit-based judgment um, about the planning decision. And we go from there. But I, as I keep emphasising, looking at the cumulative impacts of all these projects and what that means for the community, okay, yes, what are the benefits? Uh, absolutely. And clearly, there need to be massive uh, injections of funds for training and education and social services and provision of funds that enable councils and communities to enhance their communities in whatever way they see fit. So it's just a matter of making sure that those all those different sorts of costs and different sorts of benefits are weighed up in a, a very uh, transparent way. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think Lou's made that point. Uh, but I take it you'd be uh, a supporter of a kind of... Uh, master plan where we could all see uh, what was happening uh, and what the end result was going to be. And it seems to me you're more, you know a lot more about the planning process than I wish to know <laughs> or ever will know that um, it seems to me it's very slow to get a wind farm through the planning process at the moment. Well, it, it is slow. What do you think about the idea of like having an REZ wide like bird study or stuff uh, or, or similar studies uh, the whole lot of studies that have to be done as opposed to just individual project studies and combining that with a master plan so that essentially um, the whole process would look right people could see what they were getting uh, and the development could proceed you know sequentially and, and smoothly look i'm a great advocate uh, david for Re, a, a res-wide regional regional plan, if you like. Uh, in my view, that should have been a precursor to any act, activation of uh, planning for solar and wind and, and the like. Like I know, for example, in Queensland, uh, where their forward-facing minerals are for the future, they have done just that. You know, they've done a specific plan for that region, that locality, and you can then, by definition, look at all these issues about roads and accommodation and social services, and you can you know, address that in a proactive manner rather than what we tend to have here. We've had you know, the res boundaries identified, and then the next minute people are in and out all the time trying to find places to host a wind farm or a solar farm, so it's a bit hodgepodge. So, yeah, that's added an additional challenge. And undoubtedly, I'm a big fan of regional plans, and that would have, uh, I think, we should be doing that for the southwest and Wollongong uh, and, and the Newcastle residents. And, Lou, what's the most useful thing uh, going forward that you think, uh, or the, the biggest improvement that you'd like to see up there in New England? 
Well, um, from from a developer side, I think uh, you mentioned transmission. You mentioned approval times, and uh, I think there's a that is a very slow process at the moment. And actually, in some regards, in the res, it's because there's not a master plan. And so the ironic thing is, we have issue, big issues around commute, um, cumulative impact. You know, all these projects, you know, basically having an effect on the overall aspect. If there was a master plan that actually pulled together to address that, that wouldn't be needed. Um, again, things like roads where we share that infrastructure and things like that. You know, there's a number of studies that could be done uh, to accelerate that and, and, and help move it through. Uh, birds and bat studies, that'd be fantastic. You know, uh, so things like that would be really good to help accelerate um, some of the development approval process. But more generally, um, I, I think yeah, just that development timeline is such a for us to be able to even meet, and we were there before the rest was even announced, and still it's a it's a it's a long process to be able to to get through that, and I, I think again that adds a little bit to what Lee was talking about people getting quite tired of the process because it does go on for a long time as well. In that, you don't want to go too fast. You want to get the engagement. You want to people to be genuinely on board and have that time. But at the same time, they sort of get that, and then then it sort of lingers for a, num- a number of years afterwards as well. So I'm going to stay with you for a moment, Lou. In terms of the planning process, we've talked about the master plan. It's very clear that the planning process isn't um, adequate for the task without blaming anyone. It may just not have been a tool that was ever suited to doing this job. Beyond the master plan, what else could be done to improve the planning process from your perspective? I'm I'm a Queenslander, so I'm going to uh, go a little bit north of the border. We we do projects... uh, yeah, we're one uh, just 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 over the border, ten kilometres over the border, and it's a different regime there. Um, now, I'm not saying it's perfect; it's maybe going a little bit too far the other way. But New South Wales is is quite difficult to get the projects uh, moving forward, um, and so there needs to be a balance struck there. Uh, so, giving a bit more streamlined process. Uh, but. but- can, can you put your finger on what the difference is between New South Wales and Queensland? Yes, it's more difficult, but exactly, or more precisely? Um, we have to do a number of studies where you would probably know the outcome anyway, um, because there's a significant amount of public data already available. Um, uh, one example, uh, and, and there is, we have to do the, the study on the soil um, for the agricultural value, and, and we actually go to the map though and we we, we know um, based on the um, the uh, DPI maps what what the agricultural value is so we do the study to to prove that that it is that level there um, yes we, we have to do the the level of studies and the level of um, things we have to do are a next level in New South Wales compared to uh, other states um, and that's that really does slow down the process. I think the approval timelines, um, and in particular, we then have the potential extra phase of the IPC here, which now nearly always in New South Wales will get triggered because um, there's a number of groups who know they just need to get more than you know, 50, 50 submissions in, uh, negative submissions, and, 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 and it'll be going to IPC. So there's a few things like that that are really um, create a lot of, you know, extra uh, bureaucracy for us uh, and going through it. That being said, we you don't want projects to slide through that shouldn't be there. You, we still have to follow the process, but it's a lot yep. slower. 
Yep, and, and while while I've got you one, you mentioned your summit that you held in conjunction with the Tamworth Chamber of Commerce. Uh, two questions: one, did you regard it as a success? And two, what did you what was the mood or what did you learn from it? Yeah, look, I think it was a great success, and we had just a perspective. It wasn't it was a true business chamber. Um, we had had the mayor and local member, uh, and actually we had uh, New South Wales. Um, Nationals uh, leader Dougal there, um, so it was, it was great. We were able to share what we considered. It, we actually put it in two parts. We actually we called it how to maximise the benefits for renewables in, in New South Wales, regional New South Wales, and we started with actually just informing everyone what was going. And I think a lot of people found that very insightful because they really weren't aware of what was coming and the extent of it and what that those possibilities were and then we talked about how we really the, the things that we could do to benefit so we talked about some of those roads but because there was a number of businesses we talked about how businesses get involved who they need to connect with how they can actually um, uh, you know take part in this process and we sort of put the angle that if, if you're not aware and you don't position yourself you know the problem is someone else is going to come into town possibly take it or we're going to have to bring in more workers outside of town. So if we can use the, the, the local businesses and who have complementary skill sets and they, they set themselves up, we can really maximise it. So from that side, we thought it was a great potential. Um, out of that, there's a number of businesses who are now actually moving in that, that way. That's great. Um, Lee, it, 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 down in your area, Tumut, what what's the thing that uh, could most be done to improve things there? Yeah, I think we need to have that. Um, broader discussion about how to bring the whole community along and share the benefits properly um, in the same way that, that it's happening at the res or some variation of it because, yeah, as I said, at the moment the, the council's not really uh, able to capitalise on, on any any of the, this infrastructure in the way that it should be and it's probably not empowered to do so. Right. Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, I, I must say I liked uh, what was done in Tamworth because it was, uh, I think there was Barnaby Joyce held a thing at the same time and uh, uh, so you, you could join whichever, um, you could get whichever piece of confirmation bias you, you actually wanted. <laughs> uh, Warwick, what do you think is the thing that could most most be done in, in Irana? And I guess it's the most critical one because that that's where a lot of effort's going to go. I mean, Humelink's a big deal, a really big deal. Uh, and um, it, it's it's um, getting the approval for that is uh, is important, and I don't mean um, regulatory approval. I, I mean social approval or acceptance if you can't get approval. But in in Irana, to to in order that you know Irana uh, residents that part of New South Wales uh, can really enjoy the full benefits of billions of dollars worth of investment. What's the thing that could most, most be done to improve the process from your point of view? David, I think the key is for all levels of government, federal, state and local, to throw even more resources at this as a united team front. I think particularly here, the, the resourcing and the attention and focus by both the state government and the related agencies and local government um, could be beefed up significantly. Um, you know, bearing in mind in some cases, and I know in the New England, there's lots of small councils, local government needs every bit of assistance it can get to help 
in its role and its you know a planning and assessment roles in these major projects we simply need to resource these things a bit better bearing in mind that this is a monumental change that our communities and states are facing we need to resource it accordingly and i think there's a long way to go on that front that's great uh look i think we've done as much as we can for 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 one session in a way but i'm just going to go uh around the uh place and just do a little quiz uh which i hadn't uh, pre-warned you guys of uh um Lee, I guess I'll start with you with a fairly simple question. Uh, do you, in your mind, will will HumeLink actually get done uh, on time? Never, never get done on budget, of course, but on time. Well, I mean, I think it's only got to beat Snowy 2.0, really, doesn't it? So <laughs> I think they've got a good chance of that. But, but what about the end of 2026, which I think is, is the current timeline? Oh, it, it seems, seems doubtful from where I'm sitting. Um, you know, we've gone oh, i think it's over three years now we've been consulted and they changed the route even as recently as the last month so um it, yeah it seems hard to believe from from here <laughs> uh lee i i'm i'm um, gonna come up to you now and ask um uh it's it's really just a game uh how many um gigawatts or megawatts of uh, renewable energy do you think there will be in the New England res by, by to say, the end of 2030? <laughs> it, it, I think it's almost the same question, isn't it? Whether um, it'll be built on time. Um, and I always laugh, it actually got delayed before it got started, the, the New England res. Um, look, I think uh, it, it really comes down to res and whether it can roll out. I think the other projects can roll that forward. I would like to think that there, there are a couple of gigawatts by that point. Um, however, it's a question of whether the transmission infrastructure can take it. We're already at maximum capacity. Um, you know, there's a few projects that would love to squeeze their project onto the existing uh, lines from New South Wales to Queensland, uh, but we're already at capacity, particularly for solar, but not far off wind. Yeah, uh, you, you raise an important point, and that's whether we can build the transmission and the uh, wind and solar resource simultaneously, even though they're different parties. I mean, in in your view, uh, can wind wind farms uh, sort of commit without assurance that the trans will just on the basis that Energy Co says the transmission will be there? Uh, no, fundamentally not. Uh, most of these rely on on their bank finance, and they you know a key requirement before they can get their bank finance will be the uh, having the grid connection secured um, and it, it, there won't be finance in place to be able to move forward unless that grid connection is assured um, and even then they'll be uh, you know the banks will be assessing that risk and you know if they deem it too high though they yeah it won't be won't be going forward until they've got the assurance that uh, there won't be a delay so maybe another role for government uh, is to actually be offering a guarantee around that risk, uh, since it's essentially a state responsibility. But that that's a topic we can come back to. That's a big topic. It is, a bit, but it's an important one uh, that can, goes hand in hand because we have we're at the stage now where we've got to build the wind and the solar at the same time as the transmission. You can't afford to wait till the transmission's built because it won't be built until close to the end of the decade. 
Warwick, I'm going to uh, play the same game with you. Uh, and I mean, Arana Zone is three and a half gigawatts targeted and maybe five gigawatts. Uh, uh, how much do you think will actually be in place by 2030? Just as a guess, if you had to bet on it. Well, I'll hedge. <laughs> I'll hedge a little bit as well in that, you know, the plan at the moment is for the transmission line to be start uh, having be initially energised around the first quarter of 2028. So, and as Lou was saying, you, you know, there's there's nine generation facilities um, waiting anxiously for um, for and watching carefully about the progress of the construction of that line. So again, their bankers are not going to uh, give the decision to commence construction until things are, are reasonably progressed. So, you know, I think we're going to have to wait and see, quite frankly. And uh, also, I think the other thing we haven't touched on is the resource availability, David, for, for workers and a whole lot of equipment in this renewable energy space. There's huge demands globally now for this equipment, plus the uh the the workforce required for all these infrastructure projects even in in australia there's going to be big demands there so it's going to be interesting to see how these uh developers go about um finding the workforce yep uh but that's a problem beyond uh that's that's a that's a different problem uh which we won't cover here today well, Warwick Giblin and Lee Kingner and Lou Owens, thanks very much for joining the podcast. Um, uh, and I look forward to checking in with you guys again in another year or so. And that was Lee Kingma, um, uh, Warwick Giblin and Lou Owen uh, talking uh, about the issues in re regional New South Wales. Yeah, no, look, really interesting stuff, David. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds um, going forward because we can't, we're kind of seeing these issues um, arise, look, just about everywhere. Look, I was kind of interested in what you mentioned before about the transmission lines um, and the undergrounding of it because that's also emerging as an issue. Um, it reminded me what the Senate inquiry or the Upper House inquiry, bigger pardon, in New South Wales actually found about trans und undergrounding. Well, of course it found that undergrounding was too expensive and would take too long. I think anyone who knows anything knew that they would find that before it started. I, that wasn't what actually interested me. What interested me was all the bits of evidence about the fact that fire risk is generally doesn't come from transmission. It comes from other things like distribution lines and the like. It comes from the fact of what communities in, say, New England, where the, where the inquiry held a public uh, hearing, actually, actually wanted. Uh, it came from uh, the, the fact that uh, we can already see that about 400 million or something maybe have... Uh, money has already been spent on this project in sort of the, uh, on the assumption that it will get be concluded. Uh, it was on the fact that uh, 60 or 70 percent of the affected land areas, including the parts in public parks, uh, some kind of approval uh, has already been obtained. I mean, the point is this project, in my opinion, is now I would rate it as an 80 to 95 percent chance that it's actually going to get done and quite possibly even on time.
Well, we shall indeed see. Um, David, thank you very much for that interview. And sorry I wasn't able to participate. Um, something came up at the last moment, but, um, but well done on that. Um, and um, look, um, I think that's probably en enough for this week's uh, podcast. Um, thank you. Uh, thanks to our guests. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, uh, Pardon and Evergen. And um, we'll be back again with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.